Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is intended solely for the purpose of personal growth and not as a replacement for professional psychological support. The views and opinions of the hosts and guests of this show are not meant to be taken as medical advice. It is very important to seek the help of a qualified medical practitioner when making any shifts to psychiatric medication you may be taking, or if you are experiencing extreme psychological distress. Great Mountain, a podcast where we share effective tips and practices for working with adults ADD, ADHD in a natural, effective way without the use of medications. Each episode, join me, your host, Batman Saram, along with the author of The Drummer and the Great Mountain, Michael Joseph Ferguson. Join Michael and myself in an interactive discussion of sharing our stories as we journey together in transforming what can be the gift of being what we call hunter types. This podcast is intended to be your audio companion to the book written by Michael, who joins me each episode where we both will strive to foster dialogue, give you our personal insights, and share both of our experiences on this similar path that we are all on. Our intention and hope is that along with the book, this podcast gives you an additional perspective as you listen to us delve deeper into each chapter of the book to give you even more tools to go along with what it is that you are reading. Visit us at drummerandthegreatmountain.com to purchase the book and look for more tools, tips, and updates, as well as giving us feedback on this podcast. Join our growing global community of creative types, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers on our shared journey. Welcome to the Drummer and the Great Mountain podcast. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Michael Joseph Ferguson. How are you? Uh, Today's podcast, we have a really wonderful interview with David Steele. Uh, David is the uh, co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Compassionate Communication Network, and we're going to be discussing um, nonviolent communication, which is something I've mentioned uh, numerous times on the podcast. It's a big piece of the, uh, I think, chapter six in the book, the uh, Navigating Emotions chapter. Uh, and we're going to be having really wonderful discussion. I think it's very appropriate given all that's been going on in the world. Uh, it's been a very intense time for a lot of people, and I feel like um, this is a this is the theme of this particular interview. Seems to be around making uh, deep connections with other people and seeing past uh, the surface and seeing past all of the uh, vitriol and uh, and hurt that a lot of us are experiencing and expressing it in our own way. So stay tuned for that. I think it's a really good episode. It's, um, it's definitely something that uh, expands upon the theme of self-forgiveness that we've discussed in the past. So stay tuned. Great interview. Um, also wanted to say thank you to everyone who joined the Alive workshop, um, the online workshop that we just finished up a, a week or two ago. Um, it really was such an honor to connect with you all, and um, it's really great to see everyone staying connected and talking on Facebook. And it was just very—it's just very much an honor to work with all of you, and very much looking forward to the next one. I believe we'll probably be doing one in um, probably early uh, 2018. So stay tuned for that. We will definitely give you heads up beforehand uh, and let you know when that's coming up. Uh, also, um, been doing, have some more links on, uh, let's see, I think two or three episodes ago, we talked about panic attacks and anxiety. I've got some good, um, other resources for you to check out. Um, couple things on acupuncture and acu, I'm sorry, acupressure, acupressure points that may be helpful if you're going through anxiety or experiencing panic attacks, a couple really good uh, videos. So I'm going to post those in the podcast, podcast notes for this episode. So if you go to drummerinthegreatmountain.com and you click on podcasts, 
just go to this episode and click on it and you'll see the links there. So some really good, especially the acupressure points, super helpful, very simple. Everyone can do it and it's good information just for people to have. So check that out. Um, also just, um, I do have a couple openings in for, uh, life coaching. So if you, I keep continually opening up some time for that because we've gotten so many requests. So, uh, if you are interested in, uh, life, life coaching, check out alive life That'll give you all the information you need. And, um, yeah, it's been, been trying to expand that and I've just been having such a, a deeply nourishing experience um, bringing in more people and, uh, and trying to accommodate. So if you are interested and you've reached out, especially if you've reached out in the past and there wasn't any availability, uh, there is some space right now. So please uh, check the website out and give us a, send us over an email or give us a call. Okay, on today's podcast, we have David Steele. This was such a wonderful interview. I really enjoyed speaking with David. Um, if you would like to know more about David's work, you can go to livelovenow.life. That's L-I-V-E-L-O-V-E-N-O-W dot L-I-F-E. And uh, here's the interview. Being wired as a hunter type can lead to feelings of self-judgment, overwhelm, and low self-esteem. We all know this. We need tools to help us untie from this negative self-talk so we can fully express our gifts. We also need effective tools to communicate in such a way that others can fully understand our true intentions. And I know many of you have this experience where you're sharing something and the other person just doesn't understand and you feel frustrated and you don't get your needs met for listening and vice versa. So today's podcast, we're going to be covering some of these topics. So to, on today's podcast, I'll be talking with David Steele. David is a poet, writer, and life coach. He has studied and taught a wide variety of interpersonal communication skills over the last 30 years. He is the founding member of the Rocky Mountain Compassionate Communication Center. He teaches, telecla- he teaches classes and telecat classes, um, and primarily he, he works with compassionate communication Uh, and consults with both groups and individuals on easing tense situations. His latest teleclass is entitled Standing Tall in Troubled Times. David, thanks for joining us. Well, it is truly an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, and we've had some many uh, numerous good conversations over the past couple months. and would love to start by getting a little bit of a background because um, I like hearing uh, how people get into specifically, I want to say the, the term such a overused term, but personal growth, um, mindfulness. How did you, how did your journey start? What got you into the work that you're doing right now? Oh, what a great question. Uh, so, just as a reflection, I'm in a space right now where I'm not feeling like I want to pull punches or sugarcoat things because I don't think that's what's called for in the times that we're living in. Yeah. Uh, so my dad died uh, when I was six, and he actually killed himself. Um, and part of the reason he killed himself was that his business failed. And I know that he felt very inadequate as a uh, provider for the family. So when I became a teenager, um, and I'm talking mid-teens, and into my young adulthood, it seemed like every project I got involved in failed. And there was this profound feeling of brokenness in me. And I just said to myself, man, if I don't fix this brokenness in me, I'm not going to be able to accomplish anything that I want to accomplish. And that's what started my journey and uh, got me studying. And I studied, I don't know, I just had a uh, natural affinity for uh, psychology, for mythology, uh, for studying systems. And so that just kind of was a given. Uh, ultimately, what happened was 
uh, with a lot of introspection and work, and you talked about this negative self-talk uh, in your intro, I came to the realization that I equated going into business and making stuff happen with a path to suicide because of the way I was imprinted by my dad. And so I had this image going in my subconscious that every time I did something, I couldn't get too good at it because it was a destructive path. And there was a deeper learning that came um, a couple of decades later uh, after I got some successful businesses going, but then the success was limited, which is there was also an honoring going on because my way as, as a six-year-old I thought it was my fault that my dad left. And so by not being too successful, it was my way of honoring him. Because I didn't want to be more successful than him because I loved him and I wanted to respect his sacrifice. And when I touched that, there was so much love in that decision, even though there was a limit around what I was able to consciously accomplish, and there was lots of frustration when I got in touch with the, the love and that intention. And then I asked myself, is this really what my dad would want me to do? And it was like, no. <laughs> and that was a pivotal change. And so um, you talk about the personal growth and stuff where I am at right now is really in so much of our behaviors, maybe all of our behaviors, there is some loving intention there that is wanting to express and look after us. And we just often don't see it. And we often focus on what's wrong and how things are screwed up and how I'm a failure and, oh, what are people going to think of me? And, and I can't do anything right. And that was so stupid, David. Why did you do that? Oh, here we go again and all of that. And I listen to that voice and don't hear the voice that is really trying to take care of me and protect me that's also in there. So anyhow, there's the, there's the answer to your question. <laughs> well, there's a lot to unpack there. There are so many pieces. Um, I'm really touched by the, um, the connection to the voice inside you that said, if you become successful, then you're somehow negating your father and what he went through. And that, it's just, it strikes me that how much on that we all, everyone to, to greater or lesser degrees experience trauma and imprinting at a young age from experiences or people or things that, things that they, they, sh they felt like they should have done or didn't do and how much that just, unless we bring it to our conscious mind, those, that train just keeps rolling and it, it takes uh, some kind of practice or, or tool or person to help us get to that place where we can find our way into it and untie it. And it sounds like that's been a lot of your journey as you, you've, you went through that process into the world and, and found your gifts in terms of uh, teaching nonviolent communication and so many of the things that you've brought into the world since then. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of a little choked up thinking about the thing with my dad right now because it's, it's part of who I am. And just accepting myself was such a key, like not pretending I'm any different from who I am. Like we put all this energy into this image of who we should be and maybe pretend we're that. Whereas for me, the key was actually being able to say, wow, this is who you are. You know, this is what's alive in you. This is what's going on in you. And it took a supportive community to allow that to happen. Um, and so you talk about the skills, and yes, there are skills and techniques that are really, really important, that really, really help with this. Um, you know, and it starts with the intention and being able to find somehow the safety to accept where we're at right now and then out of that intention then the tools become very useful you know you can use a hammer to, to knock a hole in a wall or to build a wall you know a tool is a tool 
And certainly I've seen people use psychological theory as a way of dominating someone to prove they're wrong, you know, or a way to nurture people and help them find freedom and liberation. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I've actually been the recipient of that in the past. I know exactly what that's like, and that's a good point. Um, I think in terms of, as you were sharing, I was thinking, okay, there's, for me in my journey, I noticed there was a point, I can pinpoint it to being like around 30, where I realized that I was disconnected from the part of me that was, that seemed to have the ability to take the controls. And no matter what my stated intention was, it was able to derail me. And I started to realize that if I didn't learn about this part of me, that I had no control over it. It, it completely dominated. It could take the controls at any moment and stop me dead in my tracks. And so the process of self-acceptance and listening to that voice and specifically using NVC, nonviolent communication and needs awareness journaling was profound because it showed me that pure, as you were mentioning with your personal exploration, like when you find that beautiful intention inside that thing that you think is trying to destroy you or derail you when you feel the, the love and the, the need that's alive in that, then you're, you're no longer at war with yourself. And so for me, that was a profound discovery. And I've tried to, in my own way, through the book and through other things, tr help others try to untie and, ex and just accept that we're all very messy. And, and, and there's going to be a level of messiness that's just part of life. It's never get like we're never going to fix ourselves. So I, I'm just wondering, in, in terms of your work in, on yourself and then with other people, what do you think is, what are the keys to finding... The, your way into that like because there's a there's a safety component as you mentioned there's a community and support component it's very difficult to just do it on your own um what, what are some places that that you found were helpful to to move in uh well it's my turn to say there's a lot to unpack in <laughs> what you just said um wow um You know, I guess it starts, uh, at least for me, it starts with the realization that I can't, I, there were aspects of my life that I didn't have control over. And that was very painful because really one of my survival skills when I was young to, was to pretend I was perfect. And... I could admit no flaw. I couldn't quite accept that I could do something wrong. And it was my way of wanting to be accepted. I felt like I had to live up to this thing or I would be very lonely and people wouldn't pay attention to me. And so to admit that I didn't have control, that there are things I didn't know how to do, was actually very painful. Um, it was very liberating because um, all of a sudden there was like solid, a solidness, a solid ground, like me recognizing myself, oh, this is who I am. But it was, it hurt. And uh, so I think for anyone, that's the starting point, is you have to admit that um, there are things that you know, and it's very hard for the mind, the ego that wants to take care of us and keep us safe can be very difficult for it to admit that there's something it doesn't understand or doesn't know. And then once you do that, then we live in this beautiful time when there are all of these tools. So you uh, wrote the drummer in the great mountain with this beautiful paradigm about the hunter and the farmer. And there is something so powerful about being able to name something and to make it clear. You know, you even go back to Genesis. What's the first thing Adam and Eve did? They started naming things. And that's why I study communication, because I know of no more potent 
tool that we wield in the way we communicate with ourselves and with others. I don't think there's anything that's the, the way we name stuff, the way we describe stuff is the most powerful way we shape reality. You know, and you get into like these affirmation teachings where they want to, you know, you say the same phrase over and over again, because what you want to do is change your description, change the way you name stuff and then bring about change in the lot in your, in your life. And so, um, when that, voice comes up in me that is critical or wants to call me an idiot I would used to respond by calling it stupid or telling it to go away which made it even more panicked and so it would get louder so now when that voice comes up I, I stop and I take a breath and I say what are you trying to communicate to me what is it that is so important to you that you're intruding into my thought and that you are drowning out all of the other thoughts in my head. And so, um, oh gosh. Yeah, um, well, you know, I, let me, yeah, can I make a point respond. there? Yeah, so that, I think do. that just that point, and I think, you know, as we continue to discuss, I, I want to bring in the context of needs-based awareness and recognizing it's it's for me it's the process of getting it's stopping the war inside and finding peace and finding peace starts by recognizing that there is a value to a lot of the voices that come into our heads that we think oh okay well a lot of a lot of people label as self-sabotage that's often you know even psychologically what will be mentioned but what I found is that doesn't work at all because actually the reality is when you touch on these places, each and every negative critical voice, it's not not just the person or someone that did it when you were a kid. There's some need underneath of it. And it was a profound revelation for me to recognize that this part of me that, that would belittle myself there was some need there. There was there was a there was a, a beautiful need underneath it. It was a poor communication skills by this part of my psyche that had been programmed and kind of covered over by other people. But the core of it was beautiful. And if I could find that, then not only could I accept that place inside myself and do something about it, because there was a clear need that was supposed that was there yelling for my attention. But on the other end of it, I could then see that voice in other people that either they were vocalizing it towards me or towards other people or towards themselves. And so it gave me that doorway into their psyche and how I could contribute to them without just hearing the thoughts, but getting, you know, as Marshall says, what Marshall Rosenberg says, what's underneath, don't listen to the thoughts, listen to what's the need underneath the thoughts. Um, you're, that's the level, uh, Michael, in, in my opinion, where profound transformation takes hat you know happens and what i want to underscore is the communication you had to have a vocabulary of needs you had to have a way to name it before you could go there so when you talked about your paradigm i want to bring it back because i i'm dyslexic i had a horrible time in school and to be able to name and say, okay, the way my attention works is geared towards an environment where there's lots of movement. And I do very well in nature. And that the discomfort I felt in school was not because I was inadequate, which I used to tell myself. I was like, I know this material. How come I'm getting C's? I understand what the teacher's talking about. Well, it's because my spelling was lousy and I you know, sometimes would omit words and, and to be able to name like, okay, I have a perceptual modality that is not geared towards sitting still at a desk, taking lecture notes. I have a perceptual modality that is all about improvising and being current to the moment and the teaching and stuff I do. Some of the people I work with, actually, I drive them nuts because I'm so improv because I don't need the structure, because my awareness is always there scanning. Where's the energy? Where's the life? What's going on? And so I've taken that 
what was considered to be a deficiency in my upbringing and the schooling and the and the and the work world, and instead I've turned it into an asset that enhances the way I conduct classes and work with people. But I had to be able to recognize it. I had to be able to name it to make the transformation. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of really, I'm really touched by, you know, I'm kind of turning the tables on you a little bit here, but I'm just so touched by the work that you've done and, and the, the book that you've read, written, I mean, and the heartfulness that's come through it, because that's part of that communal thing. You have devoted yourself, you've put yourself, you've put your life on the line and done a tremendous amount of commitment of time and energy to release this inspiration that was powerful for you and to share it with others so that they could gain whatever insight, whatever inspiration, whatever power. You didn't keep it to yourself, you shared it, you made it available. And then that empowers and helps other people and then they share it and it becomes available and that empowers other people. It's this sharing, it's this releasing of inspiration that is so critical for our time right now because it's the antidote to what's going on politically. You know, that authenticity, that sharing, this is where I find value, this is where I find meaning. And I'm going to throw it out there for you and however it touches you, fine. And um, so, you know, blessings on you for the work you do, too. And oh, I'm just really kind thank of you, David. I really appreciate that, David. That that means a lot right back to you. I mean, it's, it's such a it's an honor to work with someone that's done talk with someone that's done so much. I mean, you're on the front lines in a lot of ways. So but I, I appreciate that. And I think that there's a piece inside of what you were sharing that, that jumped out, which is, and it, I think it really connects with our audience is that when there was a point that I realized the value, even with all the places where I felt like I was broken and I, I, and I would say specifically, I can name not being a trained psychologist. I can put that on there. And I know that was a big weight on me as I was writing the book. Like, who's going to really care? Am I going to be found out? Like, you know, with that kind of imposter syndrome. Still, I still feel that way. It's still there. But the the need for a human being to have the self-confidence that they have something to share that's going to contribute to another human being. When you don't have that self-confidence you lose, you never take the next step. And I, I feel, and you, you know, actually, because you're also a poet, I'm a big fan of William Stafford, and he talked about one of the key things that he would try to instill in students was their confidence in making a decision, a creative decision that that is an important piece in them being able to step into the world. And there's often, I will say one other piece to this, there's a lot of people that I think when they see someone who's very successful and they have a lot of self-confidence, they label them as arrogant without taking into account the, the need for self-confidence to just move through the world and not get you know busted up and, and people trying to change who you are. Or, you know. So that piece of self-confidence is something that I think a lot of people in our audience either really don't have or they have a lot of it and they get judged for it. So I would love for you to speak to that because that there is the, like the because this is sort of applying the some of these these skills like how do you find in yourself uh, if if you have this judgment of like oh I'm being arrogant right now because I'm not you know who am I to share this right now these are the common self-judgments that keeps us, keep us from moving forward with confidence in the gifts and skills that we have. How would you work with that judgment? In some, if you were talking to someone, they said, you know, I just, I have this voice inside me that constantly tells me I'm no good. I'm not skilled at anything. Who am I to do this? Where do you go with that? Yeah. So here's what I hear in that. You just you just like went into a whole nother vista here. You, you know, you got three hours, okay? You know, but so here's what I hear in this: that that voice that's saying I'm arrogant. It's like I don't want to do harm. I don't want to impose 
on other people. That's the loving intention beneath that. Who am I to say I know what's better for another person? I care about people so much that I would rather be silent than create create injury or distress in them by what I say. So that's what I hear beneath that arrogance. Um, the other, so just recognizing that, um, you know, when I, as, as I say it and I tune in on that, I feel my body softening. I feel my muscles loosening a little bit, my breath deepening a little bit. And when our body relaxes, then um, resource bubbles up. And that's the thing is our mind doesn't necessarily know where it is ahead of time. You know, if our mind knew what was going to happen, I think life would be pretty boring. We like movies where the ending surprises us. And um, so touching into that loving intention beneath the arrogance. um, And there's something... There's something else that goes on. So one of the reasons that I am addicted to doing the work I do, I love it, is I am constantly bathed in courage. Because when people come to my classes is when I work with people and when it's tender stuff and when there's trauma and, you know, when there's this really sincerity to bring about transformation, people exhibit so much courage And it feeds me, it nourishes me, just like sunlight feeds and nourishes plants. And it's contagious. And so that's part of where that stepping out, you go to a class, you go to a workshop, someone shares something real tender, and you're like, wow, I can't believe they did that. And then you see that they're lighter and other people are really touched. So maybe three workshops on, You've built up like, wow, I've seen that happen. I'm going to try it. And it feels like skydiving. I remember the first time I was in a training and I was like 23 and I felt so broken and so like out of step with the training. And I actually just got up in front of the group and said that. And it was like skydiving. I was terrified. And then when I said it, there was this elation that just surged through my body because I was being so authentic to what was alive in me in the moment. And I was honoring myself by naming, by acknowledging where I was and who I was. And it was incredibly empowering. But boy, did it, boy, was I really scared, man. I really swallowed hard, and I finally just said, I'm going to do it. And I literally mean it was like skydiving. Vulnerability. I mean, that is, it is the, the, it's so antithetical to most of modern life, right? Like, it's so rare to, like, we, when we get, when we see it and when we experience it, it is terrifying, but it's also, like, the vitamin that we need to, to survive in a world that we're constantly barraged by negativity and you can't share what you know it's not safe to share because we watch what happens to people in the news that are you know public people and they just get destroyed they're lifted up and then they're just squashed and so to it's even more scary then to especially if it's people you don't know how do you open up but on the other end of it especially when you have you can develop a sense of self love and care then if you have a safe place to build that up, then you can move into the world where people may not be as conscious and be able to navigate negativity, people judging you, people, you know, saying things that we are perceiving as uh, it's the difference between absorbing it or being able to have a healthy boundary where we can interact with another human being without avoidance and, and hear where they're coming from without taking on the judgment and that and this is sort of the jedi mastery piece that you know i think this is where we all strive to be and it's that this is a constant this is sort of the next level of emotional um tools and mastery so i i think given that i think that your work and the work of nonviolent communication and all the work that marshall rosenberg has done um having a group to go to to 
to go deeper into these tools into but with communication it's less about the tools i think it's more about the context for human beings to get together and have a communication that is alive and safe so i wonder if you could speak a little bit to how what would someone expect to experience going into one of your groups where you teach compassionate communication what is, what does that look like um so that first of all that vulnerability piece we crave it we're starved for it because when we're not vulnerable we're lonely because vulnerability is how we know we like to be touched we like to touch you know touch is the first perceptual modality that infants develop there is nothing more powerful that affirms the fact that i am and we love to be seen for who we are and um, so when you talk about my classes here's the thing is i have not yet met a person i have not yet met a person who was not touched or gratified when i was able to let them know i saw them for who they were and i mean you know um liberal conservative you know um young old ethnicity none of that stuff is relevant when you just see the essence of who someone is and they're just going to naturally respond to that because it's geared in our brain oh here's someone i'm seeing i belong i matter to this person and i can't help but drop my defenses a little bit because it feels so good to be seen and so that's the essence of what goes on if if you come to one of my things and yes there's a lot of tools and we could have had a different conversation where i lay out a system a b c these are the steps and the intellect loves that the mind loves that you know they love the system and the system is really really important but it's a tool uh, you alluded to it a minute ago it's like that hammer can drive a nail or knock a hole in the wall the system whether it's nonviolent communication or mindfulness it's a tool what matters is the spirit the intention the way you wield the tool and that that to me that starts with compassion and it starts with accepting myself who I as I am see the loving intentions in my actions see the loving intentions in other people's actions and the very act of observing that summons it into being that's the first law you know there's been what the bleep and a lot of phraseology about quantum this and that thrown around but the one of the very first primary principles of quantum mechanics which gives us computers by the way and gps is that the act of observing something actually summons it into being and when we are not paying attention to it it no longer exists and so when i look in someone and i see a loving intention beneath all of the rhetoric and the the hus- the, the the hustle or the the pretense or when i see a loving intention in there i am summoning that compassion and then the experience that we have together is a compassionate experience all of a sudden compassion has been manifest into the world and the container that holds it um you know whether you're talking about gun rights or gun control or global warming or um you know the bible is absolutely the accurate story and we started on the garden of eden so how could evolution be true that stuff becomes less important because we are doing the soul to soul connection and literally michael it nourishes it i said this earlier and i i it's so on my mind this day these days it nourishes it the same way the sun nourishes plants and provides the energy that's the foundation of the food chain so that we can all eat and have energy in our body when we have that soul to soul that deep vulnerable connection with each other then it nourishes our being and gives us energy 
you know, and I got to say one thing about that when I'm talking about being vulnerable, I'm talking about being authentic. I'm not talking about, uh, I used to be a martyr type. Okay. When I was in my twenties and I get into relationships with women and stuff, my, my motto was I hurt. Therefore I am look how much pain I'm willing to suffer on your behalf because I love you so much. And that's, that's narcissism. That's, you know, that, that, but that's where I was. And that's how I thought love was expressed. So you can't, you have to have firm boundary that accepting yourself creates the foundation so that you can deeply connect with someone else and become vulnerable, but not become subsumed by them, not become overwhelmed by them, not get into codependence because you're so clear on who you are. One other point that comes up as I think about what you've been sharing is, as I mentioned, there was a point where I realized I was at war with myself and I had to find a connection to those places inside me that were belligerent and uh, that seemed to want to derail me. Uh, And then I also think about, as as you were talking, how that happens on the outer in terms of when I have people that I label as being bad or evil or uh, arrogant or attempting to harm the country or harm uh, people that I care about um, on a more global level, somewhat abstracted because they might not be right in front of me, although sometimes they could be. Um, Isn't that the same thing? Isn't there a, a process of finding home both internally, but also the same could be projected out to other people. Oh, yet again, you open another topic that could be a whole podcast in itself. Um, first and foremost, when you're talking about nonviolent communication, there is a principle called protective use of force. And this is really important because some people think nonviolent communication means that someone comes into your house with a knife and you just throw your arms wide and say, I love you, go ahead and stab me. And so there are situations where you have to take forceful action when there is threat, imminent danger. And so since you brought up the global And since we're talking about a world with nukes, with biological weapons, with bombs and all of that, there has to be action taken that protects us, that keeps us safe. And thank God for people who are called to do that work because they really work hard and they really are devoted to our well-being. Now, the thing about it is to do that with the focus on protection and not punishment. If you put if you put the attention on punishment, you're perpetuating the battlefield. If you put the focus on protection, you're stepping off of the battlefield into peace. So let me just say I do a whole class on this um, on uh, cultivating inner peace. The battlefield lives within us all and it's always there and it's very compelling because you get to be heroic and you have a cause that galvanizes your action galvanizes your action and challenge and things to figure out it's very very compelling and you get to be right and so the battlefield is always there there's only one way to find peace And that's to step off the battlefield. And that's something we do within ourselves. And once we step off the battlefield, then we can look at someone else in the world and not see them as an enemy or an adversary. You still need the protective force. That's really very important. But then um, you can... see the need, the motivation beneath their action and they become more visible to you as a flesh and blood human being than as, than as a caricature. So in, in, 
um, mediation work that I do, I'd say the most powerful things that happens is people are arguing, they call me in, they want to resolve it, is they are interacting more with the image that they're holding in their mind of who the other person is than they are interacting with the flesh and blood person sitting across from them. And it happens on all sides. And so when I come in and I make, I invite that flesh and blood human being that's sitting across from you to become visible. And the person that sees that flesh and blood human being and that image they're carrying in their mind dissolves, then all of a sudden transformation occurs. And I can't tell you what the transformation will be or what form it'll take or how it should happen. All I can tell you is when the image drops and we're no longer looking at a caricature or an expectation, we're actually looking at a present human being, transformation happens. And thank you very much. And that's so much the calling of our time because, you know, I'm watching the battlefield perpetuate itself, you know, both on the left and the right and the anger and, the, and it's so compelling and it mobilizes. If I wanted to be a political activist and call people wrong and say outrageous things in blog posts, I would have way, 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 way more money than I do now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, because there's something in us that's so captivated. But if you want to create peace, you have to step off the battlefield. And you have to start seeing flesh and blood human beings, you know, rather than um, stereotypes, caricatures. And um, it's a way of becoming less egocentric because that caricature, that image that I'm interacting is something I'm carrying around in my own head. So I'm playing patty cake with my own ego. So, of course, I feel isolated and lonely and not vulnerable because I'm not truly connected with the person that I'm interacting with. Um, and so, but when I really see them, then that nutrient happens, that bonding, you know, that soul-to-soul connection. That was beautifully put. And I think one of the things that's, that jumps out to me going back to nonviolent communication was, I re- as I recall, Marshall Rosenberg, Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, who came up with the nonviolent communication process, his impetus was he wanted to understand what would make someone in the face of great um, suffering and challenge. And he was talking, I think he originally talked about people who went through Auschwitz. And there were some people that just had hatred for the Nazis, but then there were some that actually found forgiveness and compassion for those people that were doing horrendous things to them and may have killed their family. But somehow they were able to get out of that and find compassion towards those young men who were doing this. And he wanted to understand what would create such a human being. And, you know, and it also what sparked me as you were talking was how I believe there, you know, I don't know how many years ago it was now, it was in the late 2000s where uh, I think a Quaker community went through that process where a, a man came in and killed like 13 students. And they said, they came out the next day and said, we forgive this person and this is a process. And we, we choose to, to move in this direction, but we can't say that the pain is not unbearable at this moment. And so to me, that's, I mean, I think most human beings would say that's a more evolved human. It's very hard to see that as being weak when you really feel into the depth of how, how much strength is necessary to have that intention. And so I think that this is, you know, to, to bring it back around again, the only way that I can see getting to that place is starting with us, starting with our relationship with ourselves, and then our relationship with the people around us in our immediate circle, our family, our friends, and then extending that out into the world and doing our best to not get totally caught up in all of the goings-on in the external world and bring more of our attention and our focus towards the people around us and where we have a field of influence. Um, so I'm curious, what is your, your thought on that? Um, well, I have two thoughts. The first thought 
um, I just want to mention is um, I read a book called Left to Tell by Immaculate Ilabagiza, and she was a survivor of the Rwandan genocide. And at the end of the book, at the very end, she goes back to Rwanda. She got out. Um, she goes back to Rwanda. All of her family, except for a brother who was studying abroad, had been killed. Most of her friends had been killed. And she was brought to visit the man who had murdered her father because he wanted his house. And the guards brought him out of the jail and in a room and they turned their back while he was facing, while she was facing this man and made it very clear that they would see nothing. No matter what happened, uh, there would be no witnesses. And what she did is she took her, his hand and she said, I forgive you. And then she left and her friends that were still alive thought she was crazy. She said, this is your, was your opportunity for revenge, for retribution, for justice. And um, she also uh, did this. She was very deeply Catholic, is very deeply Catholic as far as I know. And that I forgive you came out of that Catholic uh, devotion. And so her friends thought she was nuts. Uh, then about four or five years later, she started getting letters and emails from him saying, how were you able to do that? I am still tormented. I have nightmares at night. I can't sleep. I walk around angry and stressed all of the time, and I just want to put this in the past. I want it to be gone. How are you able to let go? So forgiveness is something that we do for ourselves. It's about us, not about the other person. As, as Nelson Mandela said, hating someone is like you drinking poison and expecting them to get sick. Yes, yes, yes. great. That's a, such a great, so, great visual. So here is the transformation. I can't believe you asked this question <laughs> because it's, um, it ties right into one of the talks I give. The most powerful physical force that we are aware of is thermonuclear, the core of the atom. It's what powers the sun. As far as we know, it's the energy source that powers the entire universe. It's the foundation of the food chain because it's radiation from a thermonuclear reaction bombarding the earth that provides the energy that ends up at the, as the col uh, caloric intake in our bodies. Literally, captured sunlight is what fuels our cells and gives us the energy to be and do. If you look at a nuclear reaction, and I'll, I'll just say, a, I'll do this briefly, but if you look at a fission reaction, which is easier to explain, um, and fission is the kind of bomb we dropped in Hiroshima with uranium in it. What happens is at the core of the uranium atom, you have these protons and neutrons. Protons have a positive charge. Neutrons have no charge. They have presence. A neutron has presence. We only know it's there because of gravity. But it does not interact at all with the electromagnetic field. And what happens with that reaction is there's a sphere of uranium and that's milled perfectly around a perfectly milled, uh, in the center of a perfectly milled sphere of high-yield plastic explosive. And on that high-yield plastic explosive, there are these detonation electrons, and every detonation electron is exactly the same distance from every other one around it. They have wires going back to the detonator, and every wire is exactly the same length. So when the detonator sends a spark, it simultaneously detonates that sphere of plastic explosive and every from every part of that sphere when it's pushing inward on the opposite side of the sphere there's another force pushing inward also so all of the energy of the folk of the explosion is focused at the center and it makes that uranium collapse it forces 
the nuclei of uranium atoms to collide because it overcomes the electromagnetic force in the electrons on the outside that holds them separate. It forces them to collide, and when they collide, a few of those um, nuclei fall apart. When those nuclei fall apart, then um, it releases neutrons. Like I said, neutrons are net negative or positive. They simply have presence. So you could say they're not Republican, they're not Democrat, they're not liberal, they're not conservative, they're just there. And because of that, they impact the surrounding nuclei because they get right past the electromagnetic field of the electrons that would repulse them. They impact surrounding nuclei, which releases yet more neutrons that then impacts surrounding nuclei, which releases more in neutrons. That's the chain in the chain reaction you've heard about. And each one of those is called a generation. So the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima had 49 generations in its explosion. 90% of the energy released was released in the last seven generations. For most of the time that this process was going on, there was no perceptible shift of energy. And then very suddenly, out of nowhere, huge change. So we, when I talked earlier about when we have this soulful connection, it's a nutrient like the sunlight. And we connect each other one by one, just like those neutrons connect atoms with other atoms one by one. And it's totally boring to CNN or Fox News. So all this stuff goes under the surface that is t absolutely invisible. And then, boom, all of a sudden the Berlin Wall comes down. Or the Arab Spring happens and people that have been studying the Mideast for 40 years don't see it coming. Or gay marriage is legalized in the United States. Or Facebook springs into being. And so you're talking about the personal. When we treat others with dignity and respect, when we are authentic and when we really see them because we're not judging them, we're like that neutron, we are accepting them for who they are just as we accept ourselves for who we are. We have an impact on them that inspires and invites them to be more who they are and impact other people. And it's spreading across the planet just like that thermonuclear reaction. And it is so freaking powerful. Um, and so that is how the most powerful thing that we can do is attend to ourselves. You know, I walk into 7-Eleven sometimes, and I'll say to the clerk, wow, you live in the land of beeps. You know, every time the door opens, it beeps. The, micro set, the microwave goes off, the, the lottery machine. You are a winner, you know, and they are constantly bombarded by these sounds. And when I go in and I say that, they actually look up and make eye contact with me, and they smile because they realize I see the world that they're living in. And then the next time I come in, they see me, they just plain smile. And I don't even have to say anything. And so it's like that summoning thing. I have just summoned in a compassionate connection with the clerk at 7-Eleven and brought that into being. And magnify that by 10,000. Magnify it by 10 million. And that's how all of a sudden the globe could change, the planet could change. Um, on a dime and it could come out of nowhere and it comes from doing the personal work and doing it within yourself and then having the courage to share um, um, who you are with others to be authentic and invite them to do the same thing and so that's how it works beautiful oh, beautiful yes and I and I truly believe that is correct I truly believe that that is that is the that is the path towards real transformation, and like you said, it's not going to be televised, but it it the impacts ripple out, and and they have a real they have a real world uh, connection, and because that connection is has greater integrity, then it it has a deeper impact. So I want to talk about just in wrapping up. Let's let's talk about how people can connect with your work. 
Uh, you have a, f- a number of things that you are, number of services that you're providing. What, uh, love to hear about if people are in the Denver, Boulder area, how do they get a hold of you? How do, can they connect in with some of your groups? Uh, well, thank you for asking because um, it is about spreading the word and um, facilitating that connection, that interaction. Uh, so first of all, there's the Rocky Mountain Compassionate Communication Network. Uh, you called it Center at the beginning, and that's the legal name, but that was awkward for people to say, so we changed it to Network. So that's at uh, that's a nonprofit that I helped found, and it's all about spreading uh, nonviolent communication or compassionate awareness. That is at rmccn.org. So Rocky Mountain. Compassionate Communication Network, rmccn.org. And uh, you can find out a lot about the work, the community that I'm a part of. And there's a community calendar there with events on it that are coming up, among other things. So that's the communal part. On the individual, because so much of life is the balance between the communal and the individual. On the individual side, uh, side, I have uh, a site called LiveLoveNow.life. So Live Love Now is really kind of my slogan. And the intention behind that is to give people a tangible, visceral sense of what it is like to experience things compassionately. Because if you haven't experienced it, you don't know what it is. It's abstract. So the whole goal of Live Love Now is just to provide different ways of inviting people into a compassionate experience so they can spread it, much the way I was just describing earlier. And uh, there is um, video, YouTube video on livelovenow.life. There's uh, some um, recordings of me, podcast style. And so I have a program coming up that really I was inspired by this podcast to put online. I've done it uh, individually. It's called Standing Tall in Troubled Times. And it's all about taking our attention off of what we fear and really getting clear on what it is we care about. Because when we're scared, it's because we're protecting something that's precious to us. So it's all about tools that enable us to create that space I was talking about, shift our attention from away from what we fear and put it on what's precious and then build connection in our world. So that's uh, going to be an online course with Zoom and it's going to be four weeks long. It's coming up at the end of October. And then I also um, have in-person classes. I have a Uh, open heart series that looks at a lot of what we were touching on programs on gratitude forgiveness authenticity um, processing anger and uh, then i teach a a myriad of other courses introductions to mvc and stuff like that finally um, you know i in addition to the trainings i do a lot of what i call compassion-based coaching because it's all about finding the loving intention beneath our actions, the ones that we perceive as destructive and sabotaging, as well as the ones that are affirming. And then also I do uh, mediation, uh, what I call compassion-based mediation, which is to make visible the needs, the yearnings of everyone who comes to the table so they can see each other clearly and, and stop interacting with that image that I was talking about. So those are all of the things that I do at this moment in time. Excellent. And can you mention your poetry as well? I'd love to Oh, hear. sure. I can mention my poetry. Um, so, um, yes, I love, I love doing poetry. I use poetry in my teaching. Uh, I love poetry because so much of what we're talking about is just beyond the realm of words. And... Um, so poetry is a way of evoking images and insight within us that go beyond what the logic of a sentence would dictate. So maybe I should just do a short little poem would to love give that. you a sense. Okay, so this is called The Heart Opens. 
And uh, we'll dedicate this one to you. You asked such great questions today, and I think it's very in line with uh, what we've talked about in the podcast. So the heart opens. The mind expands. Insight erupts. Inspiration ignites. Consciousness blooms. Pain succumbs to bliss. Grief becomes a sacrament. Peace resides in gratitude. Compassion illuminates action. Life dances endlessly and effortlessly. Desires find spontaneous fulfillment. All is present. All is miraculous. And play abounds. Beautiful poem. What a great way to wrap up powerful conversation. Thank you so much, David, for coming on and sharing. And uh, I really encourage uh, if you've been listening and you feel a connection with this work, please reach out and uh, check in with what uh, David's doing. And we'll be posting the links up on the podcast uh, page and they'll go out in the email as well. David, thanks so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. It's truly an honor. And thank you for the wonderful questions. You asked such great questions. It's really a delight to be interviewed by you.